This is a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org. Praying that what I say today will be right, that every, any reverence will go to God, because yeah, it's not about me. Not about me at all. Okay, general knowledge quiz time. What do the following people have in common? King Henry VIII of England. Prince Charles. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the President of Liberia. Nelson Mandela. Grace Mugabe. Ignatius Strombo. Brad Pitt. Short answer is they are all victims of a pandemic that exists in our world. They are people whose marriages ended in divorce. Some of them multiple times. Mandela's a lovely example because we remember him for what a wonderful guy he was. And we forget his two divorces. So much so, most of us never even heard of his first wife who he had just abandoned. Divorce is ugly. I say nearly because I'm not sure that I'm safe to say all of us, but nearly all of us are either directly or very closely indirectly touched by divorce. If we haven't been through it ourselves, a close member of our family has. It is horrendous. It's huge. It's not a Zimbabwe thing, it's a worldwide pandemic. Yes, medics, I did have to go up and look up the definition to work out whether this strictly is a pandemic or is it strictly contagious. It spreads awfully quickly. And certainly the more we see of divorce in our society, somehow the easier it becomes because, well, if somebody as good as Mandela can do it twice. In America, I understand that almost 50% of all marriages will end in divorce. And over any 40-year period, 67% of first marriages in the States will fail. Belgium sets the record for the highest net divorce rate because they have 4.2 marriages per thousand in a year and 3 per thousand divorces, giving them a total of 71% ratio. That is scary. Russia, however, takes the overall prize. Belgium only managing 3 out of 1,000 in Russia. In every one year, five out of a thousand marriages will collapse. Massive. There are many things about our country that are harsh. According to the Zimbabwe 2012 census, however, only 5% of the adults were registered as currently divorced. Which sounds a lot better than the others, but that's currently divorced. Many of the folks who are married have been divorced and are now married again. Why? In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and everything was good. And then he cracked it all together and put man and woman together and said, it is very good. His plan was very good. And worldwide, we have a crisis. Why is it going wrong? Well, some of the reasons given for it going wrong, again, these are American statistics, of folks who are going through divorce and being asked why. Why are you going through a divorce? The highest reason given was lack of commitment. 73% of of those going through divorces said, yeah, we're just not committed. 
56% everyone help us. We argue too much. What's marriage about, guys? You've got to work things out. 55% said there'd been infidelity and 46%, Lord, help us. They were getting divorced because they married too young. I'm not even going to touch that one because God in his wisdom allowed me to marry later than normal. We have to stop and say, look, if it is such a worldwide pandemic phenomenon, is it a problem? Or are we as the church just being too stuffy and stuck up and puritanical? And should we actually just say, huh, whatever? Throughout the history of the church, the standard position has been one man, one wife for life. Simple. That is why the Church of England broke away from the Catholic Church. Because Henry VIII wanted another go and another, and another, and another. He only divorced two, he had to kill one, and one of them died by itself, but, killed two, but he set up his own church because the church at that time said, you cannot divorce. Sorry, there's no way around it, we have to put in some gratuitous, personal, selfish advertising here, but there is a, I believe, really important show starting at Reps on Wednesday night. Those of you who haven't bought the tickets, please do. Uh, the show is called An Evening with C.S. Lewis, and basically it chronicles the life of C.S. Lewis as he tells it himself. Lewis himself, there's a very important chapter in his life when he meets, becomes friends with, and eventually marries twice, it's complicated, a wonderful woman called Joy Gresham. And when they came to get married, they couldn't because she was divorced. A good friend of his, Peter Bide, was a minister of the Anglican Church at the time. And they called Peter in and said, look, first thing, come into the hospital. This time Joy was, in, was dying of cancer in hospital. And Peter came in to pray for her. He had a wonderful gift of healing. And he prayed sincerely, and the miracle happened. And she went from weeks to live and lived another three years. Quite amazing thing. And while they were there, Lewis said to him, look, could you do a marriage for us? And he says, but he went away, and he spent a night on his knees praying. And came back and said, the church says you cannot get remarried as a divorcee. But I believe God is saying, go for it. So Peter married them in Joy's hospital room and then went back to the Bishop of Oxford and there was all sorts of fireworks. Peter was not actually from that particular area, he was, so he was reported back to the Bishop of Colchester where he was from and he was immediately shoved out of his current parish, pushed off to another parish somewhere else, very much, naughty boy, you don't do this. The church is strong. Church through the history has always been strong on these things. My own father, some good friends of our family, they're still in town, so I, I won't throw their names in because it's really not important. And those of you who know them, you know how lovely they are. And I'm not telling you who they are, so just think of the nice people you know. My father did not go to their wedding because the groom had been married before. He stayed good friends, he stayed with them, he stayed close to them right the way through. And in fact, she sang at his funeral and he gave one of the tributes. They were close, members of, close friends of our family. But my father could not bring himself to be at their wedding. 
And then we're in the 21st century. Relationships have changed. One man, one woman for life has been broken on the one and on the man and woman and on the life. And what do we do? What do we do as Christians? How do we handle this? Do we stop and we say, that was very good for the first 19 centuries, but now we've actually got to fit in with the times? Or do we say, what did Jesus say about marriage and divorce? What did Jesus say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? And how do we get him to shut up because we don't like what he says? How do we gag Jesus again? Because he is just cruel, he is ugly, he is horrible. And he says things that are hard. Father, as we come to your word, we will pray that you will speak to us. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, Lord. Reading from Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 1 and going through to verse 11. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. And he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. In the first century, divorce was already a controversial matter. That's why the Pharisees used it. The Pharisees came to him not because they wanted to know what he thought, because they wanted to know how they could divide his teaching, because different people had different views. The controversy comes really back down to Deuteronomy chapter 24, when Moses wrote, these, wrote, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a letter of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house. Okay, it's causes for divorce if he finds some indecency in her. The people of the first century, they were human like you and me. And they immediately looked for ways to redefine indecency, reinterpret it if necessary, respell it. Just generally find some way of getting around it. Because how do we do this? And different people had different views. Your Hebrew word, it can mean, as it does in our language, indecent, as in indecent in appearance, if they're not properly dressed, 
it does come into the same concept as nudity in the Hebrew. It also can be figurative if they are somehow disgraceful or blemished. And disgrace can mean anything. She's a disgrace. She burnt the dinner. She's a disgrace. She's let herself go. She's a disgrace. I prefer my secretary. And it became rampant. And you have these two groups, one saying, whatever, this gives us license, we can do what we like. The other saying, no, but from the beginning, God said, one man, one wife. And you come to that classic story where Herod, Herod Antipas says, I rather like my brother Philip's wife. And most of the religious people, as happens, said, powerful politician, I'm going to say nothing. You know how it is when powerful, powerful politicians marry somebody else's wife. Not looking anywhere particular in our city. Nor mentioning the words Mugabe or Chombo. It's real. John the Baptist stood up and said, no, this is not right. She is Philip's wife. Well, you know what happened to him. He was imprisoned, held in prison for a while, and beheaded. Standing up for rights is not a good thing to do if you want to live long. But it is a good thing to do if you want to live right. And this is my first challenge. What's your head worth to you? As we go through this series and we see what Jesus is actually saying, who are you prepared to say, that is wrong? We're not all called to be John the Baptist, thankfully. But what does the truth mean to you? So it was in this context that the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, is it lawful to divorce, to divorce one's wife for any cause? See how it's gone. Not just for some indecency, but it's, indecency can mean for any cause. Now, now, this in itself is quite amusing because Jesus, is it lawful? Why ask Jesus about what's lawful? Jesus has got a very bad concept of the law. You go to Jesus and you say, look, the law says that we should put 10% in the offering. How's that sound? He says, good law. Go sell all you have and give to the poor. You go to Jesus and you say, God, I've put some nice electronic laws on my computer to stop me looking at stuff I shouldn't. He says, brilliant. Good legal way of doing things. But if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Jesus, I was nice to the policeman today. I was listening to the sermon the other week, and I know we're supposed to be nice to him. We're supposed to be, and he says, excellent. He asked you for how much? 20 bucks. Did you pay him 40? Sorry? If a soldier asks you to go one mile, you go two. Therefore, obviously, you must. Jesus has got a really bad idea of the law. Jesus, is it lawful? Don't even go there. Jesus is going to ask for something way beyond what the law asks for. If the law says something is acceptable, if the law says that's the limit, can I give you a word of advice? That's a nice place to, to obey the law. Jesus is going to ask for more. That's who he is. That's what he does. Jesus works at a level that is impossibly above the law. Jesus doesn't say be good, be lawful, or if you're a Zimbabwean, don't be caught. He says be holy. And that is why we're into gagging Jesus. That is why gagging Jesus is so important for our survival. 
we dare not follow what he actually says because it's just too big for us. Never mind impossible. The law is safe, but Jesus is infinite and unreachable. Really, if we're going to ask somebody who does not have the Spirit of God to live the way the Son of God told us to, we're being very cruel. I'm not saying that those who are not Christians can do what they like, because God's law is still the law and still applies, and His standards are still there and need to be applied. And we do have that concept of, of His right and wrong in our heart. But don't look down on people who fail. If you are a Christian and you have the power of the Holy Spirit, don't get snobby because you have that power. But for His grace, there you go too. Stand for what is right, but don't despise those who don't have the power to get to it. So is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The Pharisees come, very simple question. Let's talk about divorce. And Jesus says, let's talk about marriage. This is what Jesus does, doesn't he? Again, going back to my first example. Jesus, how much should I put in the offering? Let's not talk about the offering. Let's talk about how much do you have. Jesus comes at a different level, a different place. And so when we read here, he very clearly comes in saying, look, divorce is not the issue, guys. Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, and let no man separate. And immediately, he steps off divorce, comes to marriage, and nails one of the key myths. There are a couple of myths we're going to look at today that are associated with this topic. The first one is the myth that divorce is normal. Divorce is common, but it is not normal. God's plan, God's way, God's design from the beginning makes it clear that from the beginning, the permanence of marriage is normal. That is God's plan. Single folks, talk amongst yourselves for a while. Okay, listen, you need to know one day. I think as a, as a bachelor, I had this sort of concept that one flesh has something to do with a sexual union. And it does. But it's not, those of you who are married, is that all? Do you stop being one flesh if one of you has to go away on a business trip? It's so much more. It, that oneness that occurs in marriage is so integrated, so together, body, mind, and spirit, you become one being. The sex is important, yes, and nice. But it's important to realize that that is not all it's about. C.S. Lewis, I might have mentioned there's a play starting this week at Reps, C.S. Lewis. Those of you who haven't bought your tickets, please do. We currently have 16% sold, which is not bad for Reps, but it shows we're going to have to so get, get in there early so you don't sell out, okay? Just, just. In this book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, it is more like having both your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. He says, breaking up a marriage... It's not just breaking your contract. It's like having your legs cut off. You are one flesh. When you're broken apart, it is that traumatic. 
It's not normal. There's no more normal than the horrific mangled mess you have once a dog has been run over by a car and its one body has been broken apart. Sorry, graphic image, but think about it. That is what is left after divorce. That car crash has broken one body. As I say, all of us, if we are not ourselves, know somebody who needs so much love and so much compassion. I don't care how long ago it was. Those sort of wounds are deep, very deep. And Jesus says, that's the way it's been. That's the way it's supposed to be. And the conservatives went, yes, he's with us. No marriage, no divorce. It's always good when Jesus says something that some people agree with, because you know he's about to say something that they don't agree with. Jesus says divorce is not normal. It's not trivial. It's not nice. And that's not the end of the story. Verses 7 to 9. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command you to give a certificate of divorce and want to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, It's because you're of hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Okay, Moses, okay, Jesus, we get it. Divorce is like hacking off bits of yourself. So then why did Moses tell us how to do it? Why did Moses give us the self-mutilation guide? It just doesn't make sense. Because of your hardness of hearts. This is how we know we're talking about Jesus. Because we're talking about grace. Here you are. You're in a horrible mess. And there's my ideal, which you cannot achieve because you're human. We'll give you a plan B. It's not the best. But we will give you a plan B. Moses, write this down. Give it to the people. It wasn't God's best. Genesis gives us the best. One man, one wife for life. But because of our fallen nature, God knew we were not going to crack it and gave us grace and a second route. Wish you go? High road or the easy road? Of course you go the high road because that's the aim, to do your best you can. But that's what grace is. It's what comes in and provides you a way through, even when you cannot possibly achieve the best, or when you've already messed up on the, on the best. From the beginning, it was not so, but don't give up. Here is my standard. You're messed. Here is my help. Now, come, let's walk, and walk together towards the hard way. First myth, divorce is normal. Jesus said, nope, that's not the design, that's not normal. Second myth, divorce is never. Verse 9. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This is where we come to the whole crux of this issue because it is such a hard one to get our heads around. What are we talking about? Okay, if anybody divorces except for sexual immorality. Fine, Matthew, great. But then why don't Mark or Luke include that clause? Why does Mark say whoever divorces his wife commits adultery or causes her to commit adultery? Luke, likewise. Why? Why is Matthew's cop-out clause not in the other Gospels? couple of scenarios. Did that clause get added into Matthew later? Did Jesus actually say it? Or did somebody just add it in because, look, we, gotta, we, we can't cope with Jesus' standards. We need a way out. Let's add that in later. Well, if you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and it's 100% true, tough, it's in there. We'll come back to it. If you're not so sure, you think that somebody might have fudged the Bible and stuffed up things a bit, Happy with that. Let's assume that that was added. You take the hard road, guys, because you got no cop-out. Because that was added afterwards. Okay? Happy so far. Okay, why don't why didn't we say that it was edited out of Mark? Well, what do you think you're going to do? If you're going to edit the Bible, you're going to make it easier or harder? If you want to edit an exam, for, which you've got to write, you're going to make it easier or harder? Hmm? If it has been altered, Mark's the one that's been altered. I believe it wasn't altered. I believe this is the inspired word of God. Not everybody agrees with me. John Piper looks at this one and he says, what do they mean by sexual immorality? And he pulls a comparison and says that the word they use there, porneia, that Matthew uses, is the same word that is used when we're looking in, in Matthew 1. And the reason why Joseph was determined to put Mary away because there was something sexually immoral about her. She was pregnant before they were married. And Piper says, what Matthew is saying here is that if you find that your fiancé has been unfaithful before your marriage, you may cancel the engagement. But Piper maintains, according to Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians 7, that doesn't apply once you're married. Point that out there. And I'm thanking God for Phil Moore on whose book this series is based. Because he takes a little bit of a different view on it. And he's not alone in this because a number of other commentators have looked at it and said, okay, why is this difference there? Let's stop. Let's have a look at the situation. And pretty much when you look at your first century context, because there was such a high view of marriage, marital infidelity was absolutely horrific. I mean, you know the stories? I think the concept we have of uh, first century Judeo uh, Judeo uh, law was is maybe not accurate, but the concept of somebody is caught in adultery, stone them. Which, by the way, copes with the problem because once they've been stoned to death, they are no longer needing to be divorced. <laughs> but it is another, another way of looking at it is that your whole society re regards divorce. It regards infidelity as such a horrific thing that Mark and Luke said, we don't even have to mention it. It's obvious. Unfortunately, we weren't there. I've just lost my place. I'm too busy talking. 
But let's assume then that Matthew includes it even though it's obvious. He is including it then because he wants to say that is an exception. And I know it's an obvious exception, but I have to state it because it's the only exception. There is no option to divorce your spouse because you do not like the way they snore. Or drive. Or pray. I think one of the things that we do stumble on this is we come back and we say, but what about Malachi 2.16? God hates divorce. Hey, he does. We've already heard this morning how much God hates sin, but loves the person still. But when we look at that, God hates divorce, but we forget Isaiah 50 verse 1 and Jeremiah 3 verse 8, which says that God is the divorcee and that we as his people have rejected him and have walked away from him. Phil Moore points out that he doesn't hate divorce because he wants to trap you in your marriage, but because he has experienced the trauma of divorce firsthand. He knows what it's like when we cheat on him. And he still lets us walk away. But he does not stop loving us. He does not stop trying to woo us back. Jesus is very clear. That is the way it was from the beginning. Moses allowed another option because of your hardness of hearts. But I love you guys. Also in verse 9, you get the, the fact that it's, they say that uh, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Implication, if it is a legitimate divorce, according to this clause, and there has been sexual immorality, of a fairly serious kind, it's not a flippant moment, there is an option there. As I say, conventional church teaching for the last 2,000 years. You're out. I'm never quite sure whether the church has viewed marriage as the original sin or just divorce. But that hard view does not entirely tie up with this particular verse. Now, an important thing to say here is that although Jesus says, if anybody divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, he's not saying, if there's immorality, they've got to go. Jesus did not say, you're toast, as soon as we messed up on him. And we are following Jesus in these things. He's not messing around. His vision of marriage is hard. It's huge. And his ideal is absolutely unbreakable. It's not a case of, let's see if this works. I was reading the, the Brad and Angelina thing. After they had been together for 10 years, they got married for the sake of their six children. Now, my brain started to break down at that point. And then three years later, they said, actually, on second thoughts. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's not the way we do it. This may be taken a case of, how harsh can we do this? How harsh is this? Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is the case, we're better not to marry. It's that harsh. Marriage is so much of a commitment, a permanent commitment. And if we make a huge mess of it, divorce is so hurtful, we're better just not to. 
Jesus says nicely, says, yeah, that's nice for some people, but it doesn't always work that way. But he's right. This is so huge. It has to be seen as such. Matthew 19.9 is not a loophole. I've heard of those who deliberately go and cheat on their spouse so as to evoke Matthew 19.9 because now there is adultery, therefore I can walk away from the marriage. Uh-uh. To try and deliberately find a loophole in God, not a good. Again, look at the, the way it's, it's worded there. The guilty party is never free to remarry. The offended party, maybe, but not the offended one. So what do you do then? What if we are stuck in a situation where marriage is so harsh, things are ugly, what, how do we get through it? Sadly, in many cases, your best efforts will not get, th- get you through. I appreciate that. But what did Jesus say about how do we work in a bad relationship? What did Jesus say about, and I'm going to give the game away with the next phrase, what to do when our first love has died? What did Jesus say to his church in Revelation chapter 2, verses 3 to 5? Jesus, the loving husband whose church was doing their own thing. I know you you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. The ladies doesn't apply to you. They're wonderful. Gentlemen, I know we're only two weeks-ish past Valentine's. How's your romance? How do you compare with the love you had at first? If your first love has grown cold, that's when your marriage starts to quiver. And thanks be to God that he gives us his blueprint of what to do here. His bride had abandoned the love that she first had for him. And so many of us, when our marriages are hitting tough times, we've abandoned that as well. Flowers? Not. Phone calls? Why? He gives the remedy here. Firstly, remember from where you have fallen. Don't dwell on the pain. Don't dwell on the hurt. Don't dwell on the, she said this to me and she gave me the wrong socks to wear and she, oh, she also tied my shoelaces so I couldn't untie them. Don't dwell on those. Don't dwell on the mess he makes in the basin when he's shaving in the morning. Is that too personal? <laughs> don't. <laughs> okay, we'll pick on my family. Don't dwell on the fact that he eats too fast. These are not the issues. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember that first love. Remember how much you loved each other. Remember why you came together in the first place. Remember, as sore as it is today, they are still that glorious person who you were absolutely cracked over at the beginning. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember. And repent. No, but hang on. They did the wrong thing, not repent. Yes, but repent. Jesus uses the word repent not because he thinks that it's a nice word to use, but he knows things are wrong. He asks you to repent because you have sinned. No, but it was them. Repent. 
Your relationship with them is dependent on the, your relationship with Him. Gary Thomas, in his book Sacred Marriage, says that behind every case of marital dissatisfaction lies unrepentant sin. Jealousy, pride, selfish, selfishness. These are me. I don't like the way she's doing that. Well, that's me. Want to get to be my way. That's pride. That's jealousy. But I want her to... No, that, that, that's pride. Behind every case of marital dissatisfaction lies unrepentant sin. Marital love is a model of God's love. And God's love does not seek his own happiness. That book, Sacred Marriage, by Gary Thomas. Subtitle, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Become more godly. It's not about fixing your spouse. It's about fixing yourself. That's what it's all about. Fight for your marriage. Yes, fight together. Sometimes fight together, but fight together for your marriage. And fight to make one another holy. Remember, repent, and redo. Redo the things that you first did. When last, gentlemen, ladies, you've got your own issues, I know. Gentlemen, when last did you arrive at her place of work with flowers? Heck, it's embarrassing. And you can do it when you're courting. But oh, we've been married for a while now. We've said stuff. And we don't do this. When last did you phone up because you can? Not because you actually wanted to check who's buying the eggs on the way home. When last did you make the effort? Before Fu and I were even officially going out, we'd spent a lot of time at Haifa that year. At the end of which, I made a collage with all the tickets stuck on. Ugly. I'm not an artist. Ugly. She still got it. When last did I do something like that? Redo the things that you used to do. Rebuild. Divorce is not the way out of a dying and dead marriage. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, if I can love you, you can love each other. Divorce will not fix your life. It will bring hurt. Nor will divorce finish your life. Those of you who have gone through divorce, you know how sore it is. You know what absolute disaster it's made of your lives. But it's not the end. God does still love you. There is always Jesus. God loves you exactly where you are in your marriage. His path will be very hard for some of us. It will be a lot harder than for others. I know that. But he has not left you. He never will. Marriage is special. I'm supposed to talk on divorce and remarriage. It's more about marriage, really. Because when we get our marriages right, the rest becomes irrelevant. One of my favorite marriage quotes is by, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called C.S. Lewis. <laughs> but 
right at the end of the book, The Horse and His Boy. Now, those of you who've ever read The Horse and His Boy, it's one of the Narnia books, a story about two horses, Bree and Huyn, and their two humans, who are called Kor and Aravis. At the end of the book, it says, Aravis also had many quarrels, and I'm afraid to say fights with Kor, but they always made it up again, so that years later, when they were grown up, they were so used to quarreling and making it up again, that they got married so they could carry on doing it much more conveniently. <laughs> Father, we do pray for our marriages. Lord, it's not always easy. But Lord, we see your standard. And it's way above our capabilities. Father, move in our lives. Move in our hearts. Give us the strength to go on. Give us the strength to do what we can. Lord, we do pray for those who've already been a victim of this horrendous thing that has come into our world with evil. Lord, remind them again that what went wrong is wrong, but that you are God. Lord Jesus, thank you. You didn't just teach us about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but you died to take the penalty for them. Thank you so much, Lord, that all of our sins can be laid on you. That the sinless Son of God died that we may be set free. You deserve so much more than we give you, Lord. Bring us back to our first love for one another. Bring us back to our first love for you. Because you alone are worthy. Amen. have been listening to a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org.